Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are the organization representing restaurants and nightlife venues throughout the five boroughs in the halls of government, in the media, and making sure you have the services and resources to hopefully operate a successful hospitality businesses here in the city of New York. I was in the restaurant business since I was a kid, right, with my with my father. And obviously, it's a tough business. I saw my father work 15-hour, 16-hour days. What we want to see happen is this is a career you can make a living out of. Now, today, my guest is the one and only Mr. Terrence Tuberty. He is a founder and managing partner at In Good Company Hospitality, which operates hospitality destinations in Manhattan and in Queens. Today, we'll discuss how he grew up in the city's hospitality industry and formed his company back in 2007 with his college roommate, Jeff Brosey, who is another great guy. Since then, the company has grown and continues to open unique restaurants and nightlife venues, and they are in the process of opening a hotel. We'll also discuss their investment strategy in companies like the Restaurant Reservation System, Seven Rooms, and much more. So if you like the show, you know what you need to do. Subscribe wherever it is you get your podcast. Make sure you leave a review. Share it with your friends. Share it with people who aren't your friends. Just go on social media and share it. We are at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the New York City Hospitality Alliance by its name on Facebook and LinkedIn. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey. So guess what? I'm at at Andrew Ridgey on Twitter and at Political Foodie NYC on Instagram. This podcast, as always, is supported by the amazing members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And if you want to learn more, support our work, by all means, go to thenycalliance.org. So now I am with Mr. Terrence Tuberty. How's it going? Excellent. I'm very pumped up to have you. We are recording from our studio, which is on the same block as the Refinery Hotel, which you operate, the Refinery Rooftop, and some of the other food service establishments and bars in the hotel. And we just had an incredible after-the-holidays holiday party for all of our members there. What a great event. Yes. So listen, there's so much to get to. I really like these interviews because you're not only on the board of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, I consider you a friend, but I realize, you know, you don't always get to just talk about like who you are as people. Sometimes you're busy just talking shop. So I want to talk about you, your background in the industry, and then throughout the conversation, really start talking about like, what is your company's growth strategy? I think what you guys are doing is really unique. I think you're great operators. You're just engaged in a lot. And I think uh, not only do you have an interesting story, I believe people listening to the show, whether they're in the industry or somehow related to it, get a lot of tips and a lot of great insights. So we're uh, thrilled to have you. Thrilled to be here, Andrew. All right. So let's talk about it. So you grew up in the industry. Can you give me a little bit background on like, who is Tara? <laughs> well, First of all, I'm totally grateful to be here and, uh, and grateful for the hard work that you do at the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Yeah. So my father, my father was, uh, owned a restaurant out in Queens, New York in Rockaway Beach. And my whole family, I'm a family of, uh, five boys. Oh. Yes. <laughs> well, as you need when you run a restaurant, you know, you need hands. Exactly. I think he only had all of us just so he could to work, to work. <laughs> yeah. So we grew up in the business, we grew up in Broad Channel and Rockaway and, uh, went to, went to Xavier High School, 
went to college in Mount St. Vincent. That is where I met my uh, my partner, Jeff Brosey. Uh, my other partner is my brother, Dan D. So I used to go in bright and early with my grandfather to my family's bakery in Howard Beach, which is right near uh, where you grew up in the Rockaways. And I remember having to do everything. It's like rolling Ruggala and doing this and doing that. What are your memories growing up uh, working in your family's business? My father owned Pier 92 restaurant. And uh, we were me and my brothers, we, we, we were busboys and we were waiters. We did everything that, that my father wanted us to do or actually told us to do. So we, we, we understood the business at a, at a really young, young age. So when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do when you were growing up, um, you know, I feel like these days, not as many kids stay in the family business. I feel like there's a lot of different reasons for that. I've had conversations about like, you know, they own the family diner and then the kids may be the first generation to go to college or, you know, in my family's bakery situation, my aunt just finally sold it. So we're totally out of the business, but her kids both went to college and they're doing their own thing in a different direction, but you decided to stay. <laughs> Why? Are you just nuts or? I, I, I think so. I would. Honestly, growing up, I, I think my brothers and I, we wanted nothing to do with the business, actually. Um, we probably worked harder to get out of the business and, and, um, our, our father encouraged us not to get into the business. But growing up, uh, growing up in the city, we went to high school in Manhattan. Then we went to college, uh, and I went to college in the Bronx and we, we were working in the bars in Manhattan and, uh, we we enjoyed it. Uh, it was right around 2000, 2001, and uh, we were working for a group called Eastside Saloons. Uh, and my brother D, who's uh, who's a partner of Inga Company, uh, was was working at McFadden's, and he reopened McFadden's with a, with oh, a wow, bunch I of guys. Yeah, um, he worked at McFadden's prior with Steve McFadden, R.I.P. Um, but so he there was a group of investors at at McFadden's and um not, this is after 9/11 and when we quickly realized that um this is a business that we wanted to get to get involved in uh life was too short and we opened up our first place called Metro 53 uh wow. in July of 2002 How old were you? I was 21 at the time Ooh, and I, right. thank god I had my brother who was actually only 24 uh old and, man. yeah and my so there was there was there was a there was a big crew of us uh and it was a lot of fun Right. Uh, it, I was a senior in college. Uh, D was just out of college. Uh, Jeff was, uh, Jeff at that time was an investor and, um, and it was, it was a ton of fun and we were good at it. And it's, 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 it's and especially that time in your life too. You yeah. Know, it's like, what better than, you know, your early twenties and towing a bar. Um, and then you, did you open or you purchase libation down Lower East Side? What was the deal there? Yeah. So we, <laughs> We, we had two places at the time and, uh, you know, a few years later, we, we, uh, an opportunity came across that, uh, there was a building for sale on the Lower East Side on Ludlow Street and that was, that was libation. Uh, two gentlemen wanted to kind of move on from that and we bought, we bought libation. We didn't open it, but, um, we, we took over management and, uh, I was 26 at that age. So, uh, crazy story with that. That, that deal was made, uh, basically over a handshake over a weekend, uh, with, uh, with, uh, Dennis Keene, who was in the business as well. He was 
you know, there's a whole Irish kind of bar connection here. Uh, yeah, Queens guy, which which I want to talk about. So I think we originally first connected. Uh, there is an organization called the United Restaurant and Tavern Owners Association, um, and you did similar work, I guess, to the hospitality lines. You were a trade group for the bar industry, but I think it was a lot of like the Irish bar community that made up. That yeah, group. The, the organization was around for decades. Uh, that would you know fight City Hall on on regulation, but also come together when 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 the bar owners or or employees needed help. So uh, my father actually made us made us get involved and, and told us how important it was to fight City Hall. Uh, my father was politically involved himself. I mean, we when it was Pier 92 in the 80s, we had Mayor Koch, Mayor Dinkins, Giuliani. When they came to Rockaway, they came to Pier 92. Yeah. Uh, and that was at the time when you're a kid, you don't realize, but now we're like, wow, any time a mayor came down, they were in this, re- you know, in this restaurant. It's important. I think it goes and shows how important local restaurants and bars are to the community. And that's why when people, especially in places of power, like a mayor, you know, are going into a community, what better place than the local bar, the local restaurant to go and engage and hopefully show support? I mean, sometimes that's more optics support than yeah, it this is, is when, actual <laughs> regulatory support. But This is when Koch was actually like flying in the helicopter yeah. down to Rockaway. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now there's a whole issue about banning helicopters. I'm sure if the mayor needed one, uh, the, the mayor could get one. So, But it was really cool because one of the big things back in 2014, um, the URTO, which was the United Restaurant Tavern Owners Association, uh, merged into the Hospitality Alliance. And that was only about two years or so after we had launched the organization. I think that just gave us a lot of additional kind of strength. It sent a strong message. And then we got to work with great guys like you and so many of the other people that were involved. We are stronger together. I think there was, uh, you know, the, the, the Irish pub community, uh, especially, uh, it's unique to Manhattan. It's unique to New York City. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are closing, uh, because it's so difficult to operate. When, when people came to Manhattan, they, they, they experienced the Irish pub. Yeah, I mean, I've heard from a couple like the traditional Irish pub owners and, you know, they tell me about all the frustration with all the regulatory issues, but just the consumers also changed. They were telling me they used to do really big lunch business. You know, people would come in for a burger and a beer or two beers (laughs) or three and then, you know, go back to work. But now it's much more of this fast, casual, in and out, locally sourced, brighter lights where pub is, you know, where you want to go hang out. It's a little darker. Got a jukebox in the corner. Well, it's important to conform, right? Uh, my name, my last name is Tarberty, right? It's an Irish, as Irish as, as you get. So none of our places are really named after ourselves or our menu offerings have healthier, healthy options. So uh, you, you see a lot of Irish pubs kind of making that pivot, making that change towards healthier options and, 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 and what have you. So let's talk about your company a little bit. So how many places do you have? We have uh, 13 um, 13 concepts, 13, uh, but we're always kind of working on another one. And they're always different concepts? They're different concepts, yes. So why is that? I mean, because one school of thought would be you found a concept that works really well. Why haven't you chosen to recreate it? My college roommate, Jeff, is uh, Jeff Rose. He's my partner. He was in a car accident, so he's, he's in a wheelchair. So there was never an interest to leave New York City. And there's 27 million people in a tri-state area. And we figured there's enough business in, in this, in, in New York that, um, and, and the novelty to leave New York was never really, really that important to us, even though it's, <laughs> it's becoming more, 
you know, advantageous to leave New York. Uh, so the fun of it is opening up new places, right? The fun of it is, is developing and branding or, um, creating these neighborhood vibe type spots. And, and that's why we, opened up new places every time. Uh, it is getting difficult to kind of replicate that uh, a different space each time. Why? Because you're not only creating a new space, um, but you're creating a new online profile and you're living so, so much online as much you are, as you are on a curb, right? Your curb appeal is very important. Now your online presence is just as important, if not more. That's interesting. So what's the process when you and Jeff and the rest of the team, you know, start thinking about opening a new venue and you're like, this should be the concept. Like, how do you conceptualize what the concept, what the idea, what the structure of the business sure, is? A bottle provide? of Jameson and, uh, you know. Good. <laughs> and a nap back of a exactly. napkin. No, uh, look, we like to bring in uh, the team. We like to incorporate as many people as we can, but we also – we look at the general area. We look at what's missing. We look at uh, uh, the demographics. Um, but we also have a general kind of there's – a, there's a DNA to, to most of our places uh, that's running through it. And What is the DNA? Well, the DNA for us is, is, is really our core values. It's, it's 4-H. It's being human. It's being humble. It's being hungry. And it's being hospitable. And so – we teach all of our employees this. We, we ingrain it in our managers. It's, it's important that we also speak that language when we're developing a new, a new home. And if you go to Trademark, uh, on 36th Street, you'll see this, a similar vibe at the Wilson on 27th Street, even though you'll, you have no idea it's the same owners. And with the design, so do you have an outside firm that you bring in to do the design? Is there someone in house that does this? We use, we usually use this, the same person and, uh, it's Delago Design. She's amazing. She's out in East Rockaway. She's done over 600 places. Yeah. She's amazing. Uh, Sharon, she knows what we want. She knows we, she, she hits deadlines and she speaks our language. So when you're sitting down and you're coming up with these different concepts, like, are you trying to create a place that you would want to go out to um, and you just kind of conceptualize it that way? Or are you looking at your other places, what works, what maybe you think you could improve upon? Like, how are you digging in? Are you just waking up and saying, okay, this is the type of business. I just feel like it meets a niche. It's something that we could do really well. Or are you more kind of data-driven in it than emotionally driven? I think we were fortunate enough to start at a young age in this business that we opened up places that our contemporaries were going to or wanted to go to at the time. So it was easy for us to fill a lot of these spaces, whether it was a Friday night or Saturday night at Libation um, or a Thursday night happy hour at Metro 53. And then, you know, around 28, 29, when we started that one, when we wanted to go to restaurants or, or more tavern feel, we, we opened up Park Avenue Tavern. And so, we wouldn't open up places that, that we wouldn't want to hang out in ourselves. I mean, it's a simple investment strategy, right? Uh, why would you want to go? Why would you open a place that you wouldn't go to y- yourself? Uh, and, and then also there, there's a comfortable, comfortability factor too, right? We want, we want places where they, f- you feel welcome and, uh, that you could get a burger, you could get a beer, you could get a drink, a good drink and, and not feel raked over the coals. Uh, you know, refinery rooftop, uh, is, is a perfect example. You know, I, cocktails up there are $16 for, for a, a, a rooftop 
where we could easily get probably 19 or 20 from, from the tour, you know, from a tourist, but we don't want a lot of tourists up there. We want a local vibe. We, we want to put Park Avenue Tavern or Parker and Quinn in the sky. And I think that's really why a lot of locals continue to go back to refinery rooftop. Well said. So now that you have all of these locations, I get the sense that there's that magic number for a lot of people. When they open one, two, three places, they can kind of be there, especially if they're in the same neighborhood. Was there some point in your company's growth where your role in the business changed? You know, you couldn't be at all the locations all the time. You had to basically step back from some of the day to day and really entrust people to do their job and hopefully do it well. For us, especially is replicating yourself and re- replicating, uh, again, it goes back to 4-H for us, is this business is difficult. It's hard. And especially as you grow older, um, there was many people that gave up their career, whether it was in banking or they didn't become a fireman. They became a bar manager or a restaurant manager. And so the only way that we could provide those opportunities was us for us to continue to open up new places. So there was a weight or responsibility you took on as an entrepreneur to continue to open up new places. When we started to feel, I guess it was around three or four, when we formed in, in, in good company, Jeff, D and myself, and, and obviously there was many other managing partners that, that were involved in this process, but we started to centralize marketing first. Well, let's, let, let's just start with marketing, right? And I think at the time it was like MySpace or Facebook, right? Or flyers. Let's just get all the flyers in, into one office. And then a few years later, we got financials into one office and then, you know, eventually operations. Now, where, you know, we have 22 people in the office and we've centralized reservations, events, bookkeeping, you know, op- operations, every- everything, um, is, but at the same time, we want to give the autonomy to the GMs to, to run their businesses because they're not all cookie cutter restaurants. There. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think from an operational standpoint, even if you're bringing a lot in house, when each actual venue is a different concept it means you're going to have different, you know, clientele, you're going to have different food costs, different labor costs, different everything, which makes it a lot more difficult than if you're kind of managing, you know, a chain or a similar it is concept. Challenging. So what, when we're developing managers or training them, orientating them, they go through each vet, they go through each restaurant. People ask when they're, when they're interviewing with us, well, who, what are you interviewing for? We interview the person. We don't interview the, for the job position. So when, when they go in and like, well, where am I going to work? Well, we'll see what's your best, where the best role or best position is. So they'll start out at Parker and Quinn, but they might end up at Park Avenue Tavern. And people might not think there's a big, you know, a very big difference between those restaurants, but there is, right? One's in a hotel that serves breakfast and, and, uh, but the other one's in Grand Central and that Fifth Avenue divide is quite, it's it's huge uh as far as like clientele sometimes we also look at personalities right um we actually use a colby test it's a k-o-l-b-e oh i've heard about that can you talk a little yeah so colby measures uh it's not a personality test but it basically measures your motivation or what motivates you and and uh you know, whether it's you follow through or if you're a fact finder, right? If you ask a lot of questions, um, you need a certain amount of answers so you could move forward. Uh, and that, that helps kind of put together teams. You can't have too many fact.
fact finders on one team or you can't have too many follow through people on another team. You, you have to kind of build them so they, they kind of equal out a yin and a yang. So you had said something before, and I just want to make sure if I understood it correctly. Was there pressure on you internally to open up new venues because you maybe had like a manager at one location and, you know, you want to keep them and retain them with the company, but maybe they've hit the ceiling in one location? Absolutely. So everybody wants to own a bar and, and that, that's the old cliche. So we did it. We, we opened a bar in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. And, um, it was a great exercise for, for one of our managing partners because we said, you want to open a bar? Great. Guys, go open up this place. And, uh, we didn't make much money over there. It's actually, it's closed now. It was open for seven or eight years. And the amount of information he, he learned, you know, he got a master's degree in, 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 in running a bar. Are we, would we do that again? No, we wouldn't. What we learned from there is that direct ownership is important. Direct management is important. We, when we were raising money, we would go back to the same investors, the investment group, but we would have full control. And how are the investors with allowing that? Because I know sometimes if they put money in specifically a significant amount, you know, they want a say in even the day-to-day operations. And I know that there's always been or often is a tense relationship between the operators and the investors. You know, the investors saying, we put money in, we want to get money out and you want to to do X, Y, Z, then the operator's like, hey, you have no idea how the hell to run a restaurant or run a bar, and you're trying to give us all this outside advice. Fortunately, we've had a a great success rate, but and we've had the same investors continue to invest with us. So there's a lot of trust there. And one might be a you know a home run and the other might be a first base. So it's it's one of those things where it kind of balance at, balances out, but they know, we all know each other's roles, right? Um, and it's pretty spelled out that we, we're the operators. Um, we're taking as much risk as the investor, if not more. Uh, but going back to your question of, uh, as far as it, if there was pressure for us to, to open, of course there was pressure, right? Uh, self-imposed pressure. That's what entrepreneurs do to, <laughs> to, yeah. do to yourself. It's, tor- <laughs> it's torture. But we continued to open because we felt the need to grow. Without growing, you're dying and, and that, and you have a certain amount of time on certain leases. And that's why we liked libation because we own the building. <clears throat> so we controlled our own destiny there for to retain good managers. You want this, you want to give them incentive to continue to grow. That, that's a, that's what the, Sorry. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. That's what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Exactly. Um, so let's talk a little, little bit about kind of corporate infrastructure. You had mentioned that you have something like 22 people in the office. You have partners. You have these investors. What's the corporate infrastructure? What kind of roles do you have and why do you have some of those positions in place? We try not to create bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake, right? Yeah. A few months ago, we stopped having meetings uh, and just tried that, right? How'd that go? It actually went pretty pretty well. We were meeting once a week, and we were just creating more small work for ourselves. And so um, we were just like, if if you need to have a meeting, set a meeting with the person that you need to have a direct meeting with. And and because we thought. We just needed to have a meeting just to have a meeting. Meetings to have meetings were, we're trying to get smarter about our time because time is obviously yeah. precious and with 14 locations and, and development, it is, it is difficult to manage. I mean, we're trying right now is we're doing a four, we're doing a, a work from where you are day. So it's a four day office 
uh, week. Uh, we're trying that out with our office team. And how have they, uh, received it so it's only been two three weeks they okay they're obviously everybody's sure. open to it right they could work from home they could work from starbucks they mm-hmm. can work from anywhere people have to be open to change right and they have to be ready for change um so that's been that's been fun to kind of watch from an owner's perspective i mean that's kind of a big obviously operational hurdle but also a mental hurdle it's like i have all of these employees you know we're super busy I have to entrust that if I say you can work from wherever, that they're actually going to work and get stuff done. How did you get yourself and your partners get yourself to implement this? <laughs> I think it comes – well, it, it comes down to accountability, right, and managing tasks. And for us, we're going to have no problem holding them more accountable now. So I think that's the mo- that's the most important part of it, right? Because it's easily to make excuses when you're easily distracted, and I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, excuses. Oh, I'm yeah. distracted at the office, or I'm distracted when I when I come in. Um, now it's you don't have an excuse that you're distracted. It's 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 task managing instead of. Uh, and I know it's been early, but have you seen people? maximizing their time out of the office and is it like a perk where you better retain people but you also kind of get greater productivity and happier employees well what we're trying to do similar to our own restaurants is they we're trying to get them to self-manage right so it's a self-managing company um so you self-manage your own time you self-manage your 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 restaurant uh where um utilize our 4-h our 4-H guide, right? Uh, Kind of like, it's like a compass almost, um, where, you know, the human side, the people over process, like don't, don't let the process get in the way, right? Um, And you know, being hospitable, always be hospitable. Um, So that's what we want to be. We don't want to have a five-day work week, 9 a.m. to 4, 6 p.m. This is when you have to be here. It's, we're trying to create new that's good. Empower people. And I think especially these days where there's such a competition for talent and there's often a shortage of good people to come work, especially in the city's hospitality industry, where there is so much competition, uh, friendly competition even among, you know, competitors that we, we've, re- we retain people. Uh, and I think if you go to one of our restaurants from 10 years ago, you, you won't be surprised to see the same man, you know, yeah. same bartender. It's, it's really, it's really something that we're able to retain a lot of staff. Um, one thing we implemented in our office is, is a gratitude Monday. We, we saw a few months ago that, you know, the, the office culture was a little bit, you know, down. So we started at 11 a.m. every Monday. The whole office comes out and, and we, we basically do a, a gratitude focus where we say what we're grateful for. And Very it just cool. kind of changes the whole perspective. Cause again, this business is hard, right? It is tough. Yeah. People, especially if they're working the venues and it's nights, weekends, holidays, or the people that are even in the office that have to help manage all the things that are going on in all of those different venues. And you know, there's always fires to put out. There's always some issue going on. It can be really stressful. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the investments kind of within the hospitality space. So I know you operate and own these restaurants, nightlife venues, but you've made some strategic investments. I know Seven Rooms, the restaurant reservation system. Uh, Seven Rooms, Joel, actually, we were one of Joel's first clients with his first product was Night Loop. And that was a, uh, a program where you could basically reserve bottle service. This is 
pre-recession uh, yeah. days. And Joel, uh, we rekindled uh, in 2012, 2014. And he, we were looking for, first of all, when we look at a business, what problem does it solve? And Seven Rooms solves a lot of problems for us, right? We had a rooftop that we couldn't figure out how to take reservations for and how to manage it. And we didn't want to go to open table because we looked at open table as costing us a quarter of a million dollars a year. Wow. In all of our places collectively. And we wanted to move away from it. And so we started hiring reservationists instead. Um, more costly, but we found it more effective with our seven rooms platforms. We liked the product and they were going through some funding rounds and, and we decided to, to jump on board as advisors because we helped advise them on on the actual product and how it worked. Yeah, no, they're incredible. I mean, I, I know both uh, Joel and Allie and they've done some uh, events and everything with the Hospitality Alliance and I just know all of their clients are really fond about them um, that I've spoken with and, you know, you don't always get that with tech companies too. Often you'll hear from people saying, you know, they've built this very elegant looking solution, but perhaps they didn't consult with people in the restaurant industry who are basically the end user. And I think what I've heard from people that use seven rooms is it's friendly. It's a, you know, the, the way the system works, um, but that they are also very responsive to the clients like you, um, you know, your demands and your comments and similar how, you know, if you have a customer come in your door and they didn't like a burger or they didn't like this or whatever it may be, or they love you, how do you respond to them? Um, do you respond quickly? Do you respond efficiently? They were really smart about bringing in the hospitality experts to help and they customized basically every single, uh, platform and, and, and then brought it all together. Okay. So you know them from early on. So you had a couple other investments. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, it? Well, I mean, we, we love investing in people. So <laughs> is, is this, this woman named Stephanie Wagner? Uh, she worked for us. She was actually our assistant. She, she loved country music. So she decided to, to start her own blog and, and, uh, merchandise. It's called New York Country Swag. And she started about two or three years ago and, and every, I mean, Sony Music is sending a country music star up to uh, New York. They reach out to her. I mean, every if Nashville sends somebody here, they're reaching out to Stephanie. There, it's so that's been fun to see that growth and and you know and 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 be involved in that. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, with Bebot is is one of those things that again I think is solving a problem for us uh, with ordering. Right. You go to the uh, airport kiosks and you have this big, you know, this iPad in front of you and you have to figure out how to put it in order. It's become easier, but everything's going and in, being integrated into your phone. Yes. And so Bebot is this order ordering that you don't have to download an app. It, it's straightly straight integrated into the POS system where you pop in your order. And it goes straight to the kitchen. The kitchen runner bring, brings it out and drops it off. So you, you don't have to wait for a server. This is obviously for certain restaurants or QSRs, but it's not, it's not for everybody. You know, I think what's interesting about these investments is, you know, they're investing you know, in your business. They're not just some outside investment. They're something that you are actually using firsthand. So you can know if it's a good product yeah. or not, frankly. And I think you also have an, a vested interest in, 
continuing to use those programs or those, you know, companies as your company grows. I'd hope that since these companies know that their users, their clients are investors, they have that added oomph and added interest in making sure that they're doing right by their restaurant and nightlife clients. You mentioned hotels before, and this is something that comes up with many restaurant people that I speak with that continue to open up uh, food and beverage establishments within hotels versus separate standalones. How many hotels are you in? We are uh, currently in five, five hotels. So why that strategy? I mean, is it just a coincidence or is there a real concerted effort saying if we're going to open up new places, we should be in hotels? Well, we're an amenity to, to the, to the hotel. We, uh, number one, we're a local operator, right? And so we're developing a local concept where they're looking for an, uh, a local experience and, um, and that, that kind of intrinsic knowledge that you need to, to succeed. Um, for us, you're, you can get a better deal as far as your rent. Um, you have an in-house kind of crowd, even though, you know, we don't look at the hotel as our, our main guest. We, for us, we, we want to make sure that if this hotel wasn't here, we would be successful, uh, regardless. It's, it's more, is, is the rent advantageous? Do we like this hotel? Do we like this location? Yeah, more, more so. Yeah, you have it, you have an in-house, you have an in-house crowd. Yeah. Um, and, and you're getting three service periods. So you're getting breakfast, you're getting lunch, you're, you're, you're getting dinner. Uh, and then what's the relationship like with the hotel operators? I mean, is it like you are going in and you are just running the F and B or is there a lot of collaboration between the two? There, there is a lot of collaboration. Sometimes there is, uh, obviously there's some bottlenecks depending on certain brands. Uh, but, you know, Refinery is a prime example of what, you know, a great successful, like one-off brand can be. Uh, you know, we don't run the hotel at Refinery, but we run all the, the food and beverage there. Yeah. And so you have Winnie's, which is like the jazz, jazz bar, bar, right? And Refinery yes, up top and Parker and Quinn. And nobody, nobody wanted to touch. This area in 2010, 2011, when they were, when, uh, I think Steve Kamali was, mm-hmm. was marketing this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the owners of the refinery were like, who are these two, you know, who's this Irish guy and the guy <laughs> in a wheelchair that they, they want to run our rooftop? Um, and so, you know, they were looking for Michelin star chefs and, and all that. But when we came in, we, we, we had an idea and we had an identity of what we wanted to do. And, um, we, Parker and Quinn was just different from what the refinery is, but it complemented each other very well. And that's when the food's great. Yeah. And everything is just, it's a, it's a really nice experience in there. It, thank you. So now you are going to be taking the dive from just restaurant nightlife guy into the actual hotel business with a hotel in the Rockaways. Talk a little bit about that, please. Oh boy. Yeah. So, um, we're from Rockaway. So we, we, we are opening up a hotel, a 53 room hotel with 25,000 square feet of, of food and beverage and event space. We are beyond excited because this is, this is 10 years in the making for us. Um, I mean, we started this before Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy only made it more resilient yeah. and, and made Rockaway more resilient. And, uh, I think this is, this is just the next step of, of Rockaway's resurgence. Yeah. It's such a cool project. I mean, you know, obviously Rockaways were just decimated by uh, Sandy and it's incredible to see everyone all the incredible work people have done to kind of just 
get back. I mean, I've gone out there with my family in the summer and there's just like this life to it and energy. Um, and I think again, you know, you opening this hotel is going to really further, you know, the strength and the foundation of the Rockaways, uh, post, you know, Sandy. The analytics are there, right? It's, there's millions of people that visit Rockaway Beach each summer and there's not one single hotel. And there's 60 million passengers that pass through JFK and we're 15 minutes from JFK airport. And I'll give Bill de Blasio one credit, the New York City ferry, which has opened up Rockaway to more transportation options, which Rockaway is a transportation desert. Um, so we're one block from the ferry, which is which is amazing. And we're one block from the beach. We have a beautiful pool. We have, uh, yeah, what's the, what's the vibe of the hotel going to be? I mean, we're, 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 we, we plan to be a a lifestyle, uh, a lifestyle destination. And, uh, we, we know obviously we're going to be very busy, very busy in, in, in the summer and, uh, on the shoulder seasons. Rockaway is, that's the secret, right? Uh, in the fall and the spring, Rockaway is beautiful. We're literally, it's 18,000 acres of, um, of parkland out there. It's in the middle of Gateway National Park. Um, you're right on the beach, whales, dolphins. You have a national park in your back, in your backyard and, and Manhattanites and, and New Yorkers don't even realize it. They're, they go upstate. They, they could take a subway to uh, a bird sanctuary and hike. And, uh, or they could ride their bike literally to a national park. So we, we're really excited about, um, just opening up, uh, the, you know, people's eyes to, to really the natural beauty of, of the Rockaways. What about staffing out there? Have you been doing anything? I mean, I know you're not open yet, but staffing a hotel of that size, um, in the Rockaways, especially, you know, with multiple restaurants and bars and everything. What's that process? We, we own the bungalow bar out there. Um, and I think we, in the summer, we become the second largest employer in Rockaway. Wow. Uh, so we actually are starting a workforce development, um, program with, uh, with our partner, uh, with our partners and, uh, and also, I think we're bringing in Miss Mac, uh, Adrian, who's, sure, who's involved she's with fantastic. Yeah. And they, uh, so they're going to come in and, and, and help teach soft skills. And, uh, we're, we're super excited about just bringing more opportunity to people that, that don't want to commute an hour into Manhattan. Um, and, and just hospitality career. Uh, I was in the restaurant business since I was a kid, right? With my, with my father. And, um, obviously, it's a tough business. I saw my father work 15 hour, 16 hour days. Uh, and what we want to see happen is, is this is a, this is a career you can make a living out of. Yeah. And that's really nice to be able to do it in your own neighborhood and, you know, really just put something great there. And I, the Rockaways are just always exciting and a great place. So it's also nice to know that, you know what, you don't even have to just go out there for a day trip and then schlep back to wherever it is that you're going. It's like, go make a whole weekend out of it um, and do all this sure, stuff. Have, that you, have, have, about. have a wedding, have a, you know, food, food and wine whatever. festival. I like it. it. We should, we should do something <laughs> fun. Um, all right. So before we wind down, um, Challenges. I want to talk about challenges and opportunities. We always talk about, you know, the different challenges, the laws, the regulations, just the fierce competition in here in New York City. So when you're sitting down, you're talking with your partners. What are some of the biggest challenges that you face as a company moving forward in 2020? 
compliance, compliance, compliance. So compliance on everything from uh, HR, you know, just, you know, the, the, the human factor to because you're never going to be 99% compliant. Uh, if you want to hire somebody, they have to fill out how many a checklist that, that it's, it's 500 pages. It's it's absurd. When we have an inspector come in to, to, we've had inspectors come in where if a bar stool is in the wrong place, they're writing you a summons. I mean, that is the biggest challenge is, is, is New York City itself. So what have you done as a company to try to address this challenge? Have you created new jobs? Have you trained people differently? Like how do you holistically look at this known difficult regulatory environment where you feel like even if you're trying to do everything right, you're always going to get hit for this violation there. Or I don't think as an industry we can accept uh, fines as a cost of doing business anymore. Uh, it's just we have to we have to push back and come to the table with the city or and state and say um, there are, there's better ways to do this. And uh, but yeah, the, we have created jobs. We we literally just hired moved somebody from one of our restaurants to the main office just to just to check paperwork that everybody has signed the, the necessary paperwork. Uh, the, the harassment training is, 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 is important and, and very important. But I see a wave of litigation coming just from that because people aren't going to be checking off or so. No, I mean, it it's, be tough. yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. The ADA website uh, lawsuits. It's, it's making sure that they're accessible. The websites are accessible to people with screen readers. Yes. And again, that's important, but we're getting, you're getting lawsuits and you're settling for five to 10 to $50,000. Who, who is it helping? It's only helping the lawyer, the attorneys that are collecting. Yeah. And that's why we've been saying we need to focus more on education and compliance. And if something doesn't pose an immediate hazard to the public, by all means, give the business owners the opportunity to cure it, to fix it. And if they don't fix it after that, then by all means, come back and issue a fine. But I think we need a much more collaborative relationship when it comes to the various regulatory agencies. And then also make sure when we're drafting all of these laws that they're written in a way that people can understand them. And you don't need to hire, you know, lawyers for $700 an hour just to make sense of a basic law that everyday business owners who can't afford lawyers. So what about the opportunities now? I mean, obviously, you're opening the hotel, so that sounded like an opportunity. You mentioned with libation, and you'd seen the building that you were able to purchase years ago. What other kinds of opportunities? We centralized everything, so we do bookkeeping and, and marketing, and um, we actually package that and offer that to other restaurants. Uh, you know, A restaurateur might have one or two places, and they, they don't want to do their bookkeeping or or, or marketing or social media, what have you. So we offer that, uh, those services at, at IGC, um, hotel consulting, right? There's a lot of hotel, uh, operators that don't do food and beverage, uh, you know, optimally. Uh, so we consult with hotel developers and, and real estate, uh, developers on, on best practices. And, and as far as opportunity, it, it, very difficult in this, in this, regulatory world uh, in, in New York, but I think the pendulum will swing the other way um, with the right uh, conversation. And, and, and we have to have these conversations with the, with uh, our politicians and 
all these years running your business, is there one or two nuggets of wisdom that you would share to the young Terrence that's going to open up his first barn his senior run, year of college? Run <laughs> far away. <laughs> and if you decide that you keep running for around a track and come back to where you are and say, I'm going to do it. Don't always believe what you're thinking. I think that's really important, right? Because it is a roller coaster. And, and if you really just slow down, and I'm not talking about your ego in a, in that kind of sense, but your, your little voice can tell you, um, can tell you a lot of different things. So don't always believe what you're thinking. Um, but trust, trust your gut. I've been really fortunate to have a college roommate as my partner. I've been really fortunate to have my brother as my partner. And even though we've, We've thrown chairs at each other, right? Or we, you know, we fought like cats and dogs. We're still together and, and, um, and that's, that's been important. So finding the right partner and, and not take everything so, you know, black and white. Absolutely. Um, as my grandmother, my grandmother used to say, it's, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. I like that. So on that note, I want to thank you, Terrence Huberty, founder and managing partner at In Good Hospitality. I Thank you for coming on the show. If people want to find you or the company online, where should they go? IGCHospitality.com or I am at Instagram, ttuberty. On that, I want to say thank you for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. As always, the New York City Hospitality Alliance is a membership-based organization. So if you run a restaurant, bar, nightclub in New York City, you need to be a member if you're not. And if you sell a product or service to the industry, there's ways for you to get involved as well. Join our community. We need to make sure that our industry has a strong and respected voice in the halls of government and an organization to provide you with the resources and services you need to succeed. Again, Andrew Ridgey, and this is Hospitality and Politics. I'd like to give a big thank you to our guests for coming in. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share this show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, Political Foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Find us, the NYCAlliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.